the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. A Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of night. His pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with the light sublime. God's holy word stands today as the only infallible, inerrant guide for a confused and decaying world. On this program, it is clearly presented to you in language related to the troublesome questions and problems of our times. Its answers have the integrity and authority of God's everlasting truth. You'll enjoy its candor and clarity as presented now by our Bible expositor, Wayne Carver. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stand. It's so good to greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Today I'd like to begin a study of one of the most interesting and most comprehensive chapters in the entire Bible. I like to refer to this chapter as God's Panorama of the Ages because it summarizes God's dealings with this world since the time of creation and it looks on to eternity in the new earth. Let's open today's message by reading 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. These verses open the third and final chapter of the little book of 2 Peter. And like the other two chapters of this little book, 2 Peter chapter 3 is written to Christians of this present time period. I say this because I think that we're living in that time period that the apostle Peter refers to as the last days. There's probably no book in the New Testament that has suffered attack by the enemies of God so much as has 2 Peter. Almost from the beginning, there have been those who charged that the book was a forgery and a fraud. Higher critics have claimed that it was not actually written by Peter, that it was a spurious work written by a forger a century or so after Peter's death. They claim that it could not have been written by Peter because the literary style is too different from 1 Peter. Yet there is evidence that the earliest non-apostolic church writers were familiar with the words of this book and that these early Christians accepted it as a genuine work of the Apostle Peter. They accredited it with full authority and they considered it as being inspired scripture. God has seen to it that the enemies of his word have not displaced this marvelous little book from its rightful place in the canon of scripture. Anyone who studies Second Peter can easily see why the so-called higher critics and the false teachers would like to delete this book from the Bible. It exposes them for what they are. This little epistle sheds light from heaven into the dark corners of the false teachings and false philosophies that we see accepted all around us in the apostasy of these last days. This book calls a spade a spade. It brands both false teachers within apostate Christendom and worldly scoffers outside of professing Christianity as exactly what they are. 
This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, seeming to anticipate the attack that will be launched against the authenticity of this book as the years roll on, Peter reminds us that it is the second epistle that he has written. And of course we know that there are two inspired books that bear Peter's name. So Peter opens the third chapter of his second epistle with a plea for the undivided attention of those true believers who are capable of receiving the things of God. He does this by stating his whole purpose in writing not only this, but his first epistle also. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Peter says that in this letter he's, he's writing, he's stirring up our unsullied minds so that we will keep in memory the whole of the Word of God. I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. What does Peter have in mind when he speaks of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets? He's speaking of the Old Testament. The Hebrew scriptures were written by the prophets of Israel. Do you recall Peter's earlier words from chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 of this same epistle? Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Old Testament scriptures record the words that these holy men of God spake as they were literally carried along by the Holy Ghost. So Peter would have us to be mindful of the prophecies contained in the Old Testament. But Peter doesn't stop there. He also says, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Now, what does he mean by this expression? He means the New Testament. The books of the New Testament were written by the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And these New Testament books contain the commandment of God's complete revelation. Do you remember the Lord's words concerning his prediction of the writing of the New Testament found in John chapter 14 and verse 26? These words were spoken to the apostles of the Lord and Savior. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peter opens this third chapter of his second epistle by saying, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words of the Old Testament and the commandment of the New Testament. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Peter now goes on to say, Keep this foremost in mind, because there is a time coming when both the prophecies of the Old Testament and the commandment of the New Testament are to be severely undermined by the enemies of God's word. There shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts. Peter speaks of a time, future from his standpoint, when a majority of the people of the world will no longer accept the authority of the Holy Scriptures. He refers to this time period as the last days, and by this expression Peter refers to the time period that comes just before the close of this age of grace 
and just before the beginning of the day of the Lord. He says that there will come on the world scene those who actually make fun of the Word of God and that scoff at the idea that the age is to end by a worldwide time of divine judgment brought on by God Himself. These scoffers or scorners will have absolutely no interest in heavenly things. They're citizens of this world only with no claim on eternal life in the presence of God and their only interests in life are the satisfying of the lusts of the flesh. The Lord spoke of these same scoffers when in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 and 38, he said, But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were, that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. This is simply satisfying the lust of the flesh. And Peter says, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own fleshly desires. These scorners of the last days shall trample underfoot every teaching of God's holy word. But there's one particular doctrine that they will pick out for special attention in their ridiculing, and that is the doctrine of the physical return of our Lord Jesus Christ in power and glory to bring an end to the present world order and to bring judgment. Now, in view of the knowledge of these last-day scorners concerning the biblical doctrine of the bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we may wonder why they feel so smug and so self-assured in rejecting the possibility that such a return will actually take place. The Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Peter, answers this question for us. He says that these last-day scoffers will have observed that a great deal of time has gone past since the promise was made and yet the prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. But the real reason that they feel so smug and secure in their reasonings is that they've come to accept as indisputable fact a philosophy of the world which places the so-called natural law in a position of being the supreme force of the universe. They've come to accept a doctrine of uniformity as their guiding philosophy. They say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Do you see what they're saying? They're saying, we believe that the present is the key to the past. We believe that all things continue in a uniform manner, and there has never before in history been a divine intervention in the affairs of this world, so we have no reason to believe that there will ever be such an intervention in the future. Our scientists tell us that this world has been here for at least 4.5 billion years, and that the law of uniformity has ruled since elemental materials first began to form themselves into suns and planets. The universe we see about us evolved from these elemental materials in accordance with the natural law, and there's nothing to indicate that any supernatural being has ever intervened in these natural processes. For since way back into the limitless past, the law of uniformity has ruled, and we know that even the so-called creation can be explained by this law of uniformity. In other words, these scoffers of the last days have placed their faith in the idea that the natural law rules. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So it's because of blind adherence to this doctrine of uniformity that these last day scoffers feel secure in their scoffing. They, by faith, accept the naturalistic explanation for the evidences of the earth's past violent history. 
those evidences that are so conspicuous in the very rocks of the ground on which they live. They, by their own choice, have declined, or rather have decided, that the record of struggle and death found in the preserved remains of the bodies of millions of animals, not to mention the plants, of the sedimentary rocks of our earth, is a record of the evolutionary development of life as we now know it over billions of years of Earth's history. They totally ignore the fact that this record can be explained much better in terms of a great world catastrophe that occurred in the relatively recent past, and that this catastrophe could only have been a judgment of the God of creation. In fact, Peter tells us that these last-day scoffers overlook the facts of true science which prove their theory to be false. He goes on to say, for this they willingly are ignorant of. And then he names two great events in world history that definitely represent direct interventions of God into the affairs of this world. The first of these is creation itself. The second is the great flood in the days of Noah. I see that my time is gone. We'll continue with our study of God's panorama of the ages on the next broadcast. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I'm speaking today on the subject of Panorama of the Ages. This is a study of 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's open this second message of the series by reading 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The false philosophy of the last day scoffers is described in verse 4. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Peter's prophecy has been remarkably fulfilled in our day. These words written here precisely describe a false philosophy which is held by a majority of the people of the civilized world today. Christians, as well as unbelievers, are well indoctrinated into this system of thinking, and there are very few living today who are not, to some degree, affected by it. The philosophy described by Peter can be called the doctrine of uniformity. It's that philosophy that makes the so-called laws of nature the supreme power of the universe. The doctrine of uniformity makes the assumption that the natural law, as we see it operating today, has never been modified or superseded. It assumes that all of the history of the earth, as well as of the other heavenly bodies of our universe, can be explained by the slow processes of the natural law operating over an infinite sea of time. The doctrine of uniformity assumes that all of the evidence of the fossil-bearing sedimentary rocks of the earth's crust can be explained by the present slow processes of erosion and redeposition operating over billions of years of time. This is what is wrapped up in the statement that Peter quotes as coming from the scoffers of the last days. For since the fathers fell asleep, 
all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. These English words are a very good translation of Peter's original Greek. They describe the present-day doctrine of uniformity very precisely. This doctrine says, For since the fathers fell asleep, since way back in the infinite uncharted past, all things, all natural phenomena, all processes of the universe continue as they were, continue without interruption and without change and without control of any supernatural force or being from the beginning of the creation. Even creation itself is included in this all-encompassing view of this false doctrine of uniformity. Notice that the last-day scoffers not only include creation in their uniformitarianistic reasonings, but they infer that creation is still going on. All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. That is the very philosophy of our times. Creation, to most people of the world today, is just the shaping of the present order by the processes of evolution which have been going on since the time when material in some elemental state began to break up and form the universe. To them, creation is still going on. Peter prophesies that the last day scoffers will say, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. These words are quite descriptive of the philosophy of evolutionary uniformitarianism that is rampant in the world today. However, they are not the exact English words that are used today by the advocates who promote this philosophy. These authors and teachers use a much more catchy statement, one that's easy to hold in the mind and that's easy to repeat in parrot-like fashion to students as well as to curious outsiders. It's a statement that was coined by Sir Charles Lyell, who is today remembered as the father of historical geology. The statement was used to introduce a series of three books on the subject of historical geology that were published in England between 1830 and 1833. Sir Charles stated the words of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4 in the following form, the present is the key to the past. In other words, Sir Charles Lyell's philosophy, which he accepted by pure faith, not because he was compelled to do so by any evidence in the rocks was precisely all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Peter's prophecy has been fulfilled. But Peter goes on to totally refute this false doctrine by bringing up two events in the past history of this planet that absolutely cannot be explained by the doctrine of uniformity. Notice he introduces his refutation with an extremely interesting statement. For this they willingly are ignorant of. Peter says that these last-day scoffers willingly remain ignorant of the truth. It is not a natural mistake that has carried them into the false philosophy which permits them to feel justified in scoffing at the word of God. Peter says that they willingly ignore the facts that the present positive proof that their philosophy is wrong. Peter asserts, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens came into being of old, and also the earth compacted out of the water and amidst the waters. The facts of a supernatural creation and of a supernatural judgment of God is what these last-day scoffers willingly ignore. Again, Peter's prophecy has been precisely fulfilled in our day. 
You see, Peter's prophecy seems to infer that the principles of the natural law, that law which the last day scoffers doctrine of uniformity holds as being the supreme and governing entity of the universe, these principles themselves prove that the original creation was by supernatural means. And this is exactly the situation as it stands today. Supernatural creation, as it's presented in the Bible, is the only technically acceptable theory that has ever been brought forward by any source at any time. Supernatural creation is a scientific fact. The most basic laws of natural science prove it. And yet, most of the population of the world, the most learned scientists included, ignore this proof and go blindly on in their total acceptance of the doctrine of uniformity. Why do I say that supernatural creation is a provable scientific fact? Pay very close attention to the next few moments as I continue, as I briefly present this proof. Even though I must touch on a deeply technical subject, this is of profound importance. Since the work of Dr. Albert Einstein and the dawn of the nuclear age during the first half of this century, physicists have known that the material of which this universe is made is really not material at all when you reduce, reduce it to its basic essence. That is, what we call matter, and this includes all solids, liquids, and gases, is really energy in a special form. Matter can be converted directly into energy, and energy can be concentrated to form matter. Our universe functions by the constant exchange of energy from one form into one or more other forms. Each time energy undergoes a transformation of form, there are two, and only two, basic laws that determine the outcome. These laws are known respectively as the first and second laws of energy exchange, or the first and second laws of thermodynamics. The first law says that energy cannot be created nor destroyed. All energy that goes into the exchange comes out of the exchange. None is lost, none is added. The second law says that although no energy is destroyed, the energy that comes out of the exchange is degraded in quality. That is, the energy is no longer as available for doing useful work as it was before the exchange. Our universe is made of energy, and no new energy is being added to it. But the energy of which the universe is made is constantly wearing out because the universe functions by constant energy exchanges. Given sufficient time, our universe is going to die because all the energy is eventually going to wear out. This has not yet happened. Therefore, we have proof that our universe and the energy of which it's made is not infinitely old. This means that energy must have come into existence at some time in the finite past. But the first law of energy exchange, a part of the natural law, says that this is impossible. The only valid conclusion is that energy came into existence by a law that supersedes the natural law, and this by definition is supernatural law. The Bible is the only source of a supernatural theory of beginnings. The Bible provides the only technically acceptable theory of the origin of the universe that has ever, ever been presented. The Bible is the only record that accounts for the origin of energy. And our universe is, plain and simple, made of energy. The fact that the universe exists and functions is proof that energy came into being at some time in the finite past. If the universe were infinitely old, it would not be a functioning universe because one of the most basic laws of science says that the universe is decaying with passing time. 
However, the companion law to this law of decay forbids energy to come into existence. So here we have the so-called natural law forbidding a phenomenon which the natural law also proves did definitely happen. We have a puzzling paradox that the doctrine of uniformity cannot solve. The only way out is to realize the truth of the biblical revelation. The natural law is not the supreme entity of the universe. The natural law is the law that was set over the completed creation to preserve it after creation was accomplished by a higher principle. And this higher principle is, by definition, a supernatural law. The Bible gives us a highly technical description of just such a supernatural creation in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. As Peter says, for this they willingly are ignorant of. I see that my time is almost gone. We'll take up on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. It's so good to greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let me welcome you to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. Let's continue with our study of Panorama of the Ages by reading 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The basis for the attack of the last day scoffers upon the word of God in general and on the doctrine of the bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring an end to the present world system in particular is their blind adherence to a doctrine of uniformity a doctrine that teaches all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Or, in other words, it's a doctrine that places one's faith in the supremacy of the so-called natural law. A doctrine that says the present is the key to the past will be the dominant and primary belief of these last-day scoffers. We have seen that happen during the past two centuries. In our day, a doctrine of uniformity that began to intrude upon the so-called Christian world in the latter part of the 18th century has come to all but dominate the thought structure of a majority of the people of the world. The philosophy behind this doctrine of uniformity is that present natural law operating over vast ages of geologic time through the so-called principles of evolution is responsible for the present order of things in our world. This philosophy leaves no room for the God of creation or for his divine intervention in the affairs of the world, either in the past or in the future. Therefore, a majority of the people of the world today scoff at the idea that Jesus Christ is coming again to bring an end to this age in which we live, to bring judgment on this world, and to usher in a new age. People of the world today, in a very literal sense, say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. From this standpoint alone, there is sufficient evidence to show that we are living in the time that the inspired Apostle Peter referred to as the last days. To counter this false philosophy, the Apostle Peter points to two cataclysmic events in past world history that cannot be explained by a doctrine of uniformity. 
The first of these is the creation itself. The second is the judgment of the great universal flood that God brought on the world at the time of Noah. But in introducing these two events, Peter begins with the words, For this they willingly are ignorant of. In these words, the apostle tells us that there is a willful ignoring of the facts by these last day scoffers. This seems to indicate that there is evidence to the truthfulness of the scriptural record of these two events outside of the scripture. And, as I pointed out, this is indeed the case. The theories of origins that are generated within the framework of evolutionary uniformitarianism always start with basic material in some elemental form. Usually the advocates of the doctrine of uniformity postulate the initial existence of a cloud of hot gases. Hot gases represent matter at a very high energy level. But today, in the latter part of the 20th century, we know that gases themselves, matter, are just tremendous concentrations of energy. Thus, the advocates of evolutionary uniformitarianism start their reasonings by the postulation of the existence of tremendous quantities of highly charged energy. They make no attempt to explain how the energy came into existence. Yet the two most basic laws of the universe, as physical scientists observe them today, first, forbid energy to come into existence. The first law of thermodynamics says energy cannot be created nor destroyed. And secondly, say that energy goes to a lower state of usefulness, that is, it decays or discharges with passing time. The second law of thermodynamics says that each time energy changes form, a portion of it decays into a less useful state, and that portion is no longer as available to do useful work as it was previously. The second law of thermodynamics says that each time energy changes form, a portion of it decays into a less useful state, and that portion is no longer as available to do useful work as it was previously. The postulation of the existence of tremendous quantities of highly charged energy as a starting point for uniformitarianistic theories of the origin of the universe is really just begging the question. The real problem has been ignored. In order to present a technically acceptable theory of the origin of the universe, one must first explain how energy came into existence. And here the naturalistic uniformitarianist has a problem. The natural law, which he says is the supreme principle of the universe, forbids energy to come into existence. Energy cannot be created nor destroyed. Yet the universe does exist, so this is proof that energy exists. The universe is still functioning, so this is proof that the energy of which the universe is made is not infinitely old. The second law of thermodynamics says that with passing time, energy decays to a lower state of usefulness and eventually to a state of thermal equilibrium, which to the universe is death. So if the energy of which our universe is made is infinitely old, then our universe would have already died a heat death as passing time brought all energy to thermal equilibrium. These facts are known by the scientists of our day, yet a majority of them persist in continuing to expound their doctrine of uniformity, a doctrine that is provably false. 
They say, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Or, in more modern terminology, the present is the key to the past. No wonder the Holy Spirit, speaking through Peter, says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens came into being of old, and also the earth compacted out of water and amidst the waters. The Bible explains the origin of energy. The creation account tells us that God, by his omnipotent power, brought highly charged energy into existence by creative processes that only he knows and controls. By this same power, he shaped and formed the created energy into a precision functioning universe during the six-day creation period. Then on the seventh day, God's creative processes were stopped, and he imposed the present natural law to sustain his finished creation. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3 reads, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, and that word work really should be translated energy, he had rested from all his energy which God created and made. In order to point out the absolute falsity of this doctrine of uniformity, the Apostle Peter, as he is moved along by the Holy Spirit of God, points to two events in past history that cannot be explained by the doctrine of uniformity. The first of these is creation itself. Peter writes, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens came into being of old, and the earth compacted out of the water and amidst the waters. Peter does not mince words as he brings up these events. He points out that it is willing ignorance, not enforced nor non-enlightened ignorance, that causes these last-day scoffers to adhere rigidly to their doctrine of uniformity. In their day, there will be irrefutable proof that the universe did not come into existence by the natural law which these scoffers will hold up as the supreme power of the universe. These ignorant earth dwellers will fly in the face of such proof and will persist in following after their false philosophy that all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So Peter first points to the great event of the creation itself by saying, By the word of God the heavens came into being of old, and the earth which was compacted out of the water and amidst the waters. In these words, Peter directs our minds back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, and he especially calls to mind God's creative works of the first three days as recorded in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Notice he says that it was by the word of God that the heavens and the earth came into being. In my opinion, we should capitalize the word word in this passage. I think that it refers to God the Son, the pre-incarnate Christ. The word here is a form of the Greek logos, which is the very same Greek word used to refer to him in John chapter 1 and verse 1, where we read, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We're told in several New Testament scriptures that it was the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, the pre-incarnate Christ, who was the active agent in the work of creation. So here Peter says that it was by the word of God that the heavens and the earth came into being of old. But notice particularly what the apostle Peter has to say about the creation and the forming of the earth. He says, and I'm literally translating the original Greek, the earth was compacted out of water and amidst 
the waters. And by this, he's directing our attention to an important fact concerning the earth as it was originally created before that first cosmos being overflowed with water perished. You see, the Genesis creation account tells us that the earth, as God originally brought it into existence, was covered by the waters of a universal sea. The work of the second and third creation days was centered around two great divisions of the waters of this universal sea. Peter tells us here that it was the waters, the life-giving element of the newly created earth, that was used to shape and form it into a perfect abode for the first man. He also brings to our attention the fact that the first earth was established amidst the waters. This important fact accounts for the great difference between that world that then was and the heavens and the earth that are now. I see that my time is almost gone. We'll continue with our study of God's panorama of the ages on our next broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to be able to visit with you by radio with another message from God's Holy Word. Today we're continuing our study of Panorama of the Ages as it's contained in 2 Peter chapter 3. To open this fourth message of the series, let me read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In order to point out the falsity and ridiculousness of the doctrine of uniformity that's presented by the last day scoffers, the apostle Peter brings up two catastrophic events in past history that absolutely cannot be explained by this doctrine. The first of these two events is the creation itself. The second is the great flood at the time of Noah. Water is a very prominent substance in the first ten verses of the first chapter of the Bible. When one reads the creation account, he should be impressed with the fact that water did play an important part in compacting or forming the original earth. The first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, states the fact of God's creation out of nothing of the heavens, space, the earth, matter or substance, and time in the beginning. But it's the second verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, where the compound water is first mentioned. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. This verse is a description of the earth as it existed a moment after God created it. The earth, as it was originally commanded into existence by the word of God, was not a finished product. It was without form, that is, it was a smooth sphere, and its surface had not yet been shaped into a proper form to cause the waters to flow into low places and form seas and away from the high places so that they could become dry land or continents. It was void, and that word simply means empty. It did not yet have any living inhabitants. In the work of the first three creation days, God corrected the deficiency of formlessness, in, and in the last three creation days, he corrected the condition of voidness or emptiness. 
But we're also told that the newly created earth was covered with a universal blanket of water. The Hebrew word that's translated deep is the word for a large body of water. We're told that the Spirit of God moved or brooded over those waters. Now the creation account tells us that two of the great acts of God that he accomplished to correct the deficiency of formlessness were acts of separation of this initial universal blanket of water. On the second creation day, God separated the waters from the waters, and the result was that a portion of the waters that were originally on the surface of the initial earth were elevated above the firmament. The word firmament refers to the atmospheric heaven, or what we today simply call the atmosphere. So after this act of God, there was a significant body of waters of the original universal sea left below the atmosphere, that is, on and under the surface of the earth, but there was also a significant body of waters above the atmosphere, apparently in the form of a gigantic blanket of water vapor. From that time until the time of the great flood, that body of waters remained above the atmosphere. On the third creation day, God again divided the waters below the atmosphere, and the dry land appeared. That first world that then was, was truly and literally compacted out of water and amidst the waters. Peter speaks first of the event of creation itself, and then he goes on to speak of the great universal flood at the time of Noah, whereby the world, our cosmos, that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. After this statement, Peter continued his discourse by speaking of the heavens and the earth which are now. By his word sequence, the apostle has not only drawn a contrast between what he refers to as the cosmos that then was and the heavens and the earth which are now, but he has considered the creation as the event that initiated the cosmos that then was and the flood as the event that initiated the heavens and the earth which are now. He brings the substance water into the foreground as playing a very important part in forming both of these worlds. By the way, I'm using the transliterated Greek word cosmos in verse 6 rather than its English translation world because although cosmos means world, it actually means a great deal more than does our English word world. The word cosmos in Greek actually refers to an organized system and it stands in contrast to the Greek word chaos, which refers to a situation totally devoid of any organization. The ancient Greeks recognized our world as an organized system, so they designated it as a cosmos. That word became the common name for our planet. Peter is using the word cosmos in a very technical sense when in verse 6 he says, whereby the cosmos that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. The apostle is designating the world before the flood as a cosmos, an organized system. There are three components of the world before the flood which Peter has in mind when he refers to the cosmos that then was. This designation includes the pre-flood geosphere, which was the earth itself, the pre-flood atmosphere, which was the blanket of vapors that surrounded the earth, and the pre-flood biosphere, which included the complex pattern of uh, plant and animal life that lived in that world. And Peter says, whereby the cosmos, that entire organized system that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. The, world tra the word translated perished literally implies total destruction. Peter says that the great judgment of the flood 
using the compound water as God's implement of judgment, brought total destruction to the organized system which was the first world. But in the aftermath of the great judgment of the flood, God brought forth a new cosmos, a new organized system, the heavens and the earth which are now. Peter goes on to tell us that this present cosmos is held in reserve for judgment also, not by the compound water, but by fire. In these verses, the Holy Spirit, speaking through the pen of Peter, brings out clearly the fact that the present cosmos is different from the first cosmos, and this difference is in some way related to the way in which the great reservoirs of water are related to the two organized systems. Peter points out that water was the compound that was used to mold and form the final shape of the first world during God's work of the first three creation days. He also points out that this very same substance was used as an implement to bring judgment and destruction on that same world. Then a second shifting of the planet's great reservoirs of water, but in a different way, resulted in the shaping and forming of this present world. However, the pre-flood cosmos and the post-flood cosmos are not identical in design. Verse 5 tells us that the first cosmos was compacted out of water and stood amidst the waters. The creation account in Genesis chapter 1 also asserts this fact. Genesis chapter 1 verses 6 through 8 tell us of God's positioning of the two divided reservoirs of water so that the atmosphere of the first earth was sandwiched between them. Then the lower reservoir of waters was allowed to flow into depressed areas which God formed on the surface of the planet so that the elevated areas, also formed by God, protruded and became dry land. That world was truly compacted out of the water and stood amidst the waters. But at the time of Noah, God allowed the upper waters of the sandwich to fall to the surface of the earth. He also evened out the depressions and the raised areas of the surface of the earth. As a result, the cosmos that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. The great blanket of waters above the firmament acted very much as the glass of a gigantic greenhouse to that first world, and it provided a perfect climate for the cosmos that then was. The pre-flood planet was equally heated from equator to the poles, and the temperature over the entire surface of the globe most likely did not vary more than a couple of degrees about a mean in the low 70s on the Fahrenheit scale throughout all seasons and from day to night. Because of this equal global heating, storm systems could not form. There were no great movements of air masses, and there was no rain. The abundant vegetation of that first world was watered by a system of springs fed by a portion of the waters below the firmament, waters that had been trapped under pressure beneath the surface of the continents, and by the heavy dews laid down each night from a humidity-saturated atmosphere which was brought below the dew point by an approximate few degrees of drop in the nighttime temperature. The water vapor canopy above the atmosphere of that first cosmos acted as an extremely efficient filter against the high energy radiations from the sun which are so harmful to biological life of this present cosmos. This seems to have been a contributing factor to the long lifespans of the men and animals that lived in that world. But that first world population turned from God and became corrupt and wicked. And at God's appointed time, he supernaturally intervened in the affairs of that world and brought judgment upon it, whereby the cosmos that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. 
to bring about this great judgment, God used the very substance out of which it was compacted and within which it was sandwiched. He distorted the surface so that the high areas sunk and the low areas were pushed upward. The seas of that first world began to flow out over the land areas, and at the same time God caused the blanket of water vapors above the firmament to begin to coalesce. These waters fell to the earth's surface as forty days and forty nights of intense rainfall. The judgment of the great flood ended the history of the first world. My time is almost gone for today, but we'll continue with our study of the panorama of the ages on the next broadcast. I greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. Let's continue with our study of Panorama of the Ages by reading 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Those of the last days of this age of grace who scoff at the idea that God, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to return to this earth and bring an end to our present world system are willingly ignorant of the fact that the broad panorama of world history has already included both a supernatural creation and a supernatural destruction of the organized system that was the initial result of the supernatural creation. The panorama of world history began with God's creation of space, the backdrop of our universe. By the word of God, the heavens came into existence of old. God then brought the earth into existence out of nothing, and he used the created waters of that initial earth to first form it into a fit habitation for man, and then to establish a perfect climactic system which was controlled by the unique arrangement of the waters above and below that first world's atmosphere. And the earth came into existence also, compacted out of the water, and standing amidst the waters. The earth, as it originally came into existence, was covered by a universal sea. But on the second creation day, God divided the waters of this universal sea, and he elevated approximately one-half of the earth's supply of waters above the gases of the atmosphere. These waters above the firmament were present as a huge blanket of water vapor. The atmosphere of that first earth, which literally was the environment of the men dwelling on its surface, was essentially sandwiched between two huge reservoirs of water. Truly, that first cosmos was compacted out of water, and it stood amidst the waters. But that perfect first earth witnessed the fall of man, and as a result of God's curse, it became less than perfect. And unto Adam, God said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground, that is, cursed is the earth, for thy sake. 
In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee. The men of that first world, born to our fallen first parents, were wicked and evil, and their fallen nature placed them in rebellion against God. The spiritual and moral conditions of that first world became worse and worse. In less than 2,000 years after the original perfect creation, we find these ominous words. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man upon the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. One hundred and twenty years later, after Noah had sufficient time to fulfill the Lord's commandment and build an ark of safety, we find this historical account. In the sixth hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. The fountains of the great deep refer to the waters below the firmament. We're told that God brought on the judgment of the great flood by first breaking up the fountains of the great deep. In other words, God, by his omnipotent power, broke up the containers that he had prepared for the waters below the firmament. These containers were the sea basins which he had originally formed on the third creation day by depressing areas of the earth's crust. They were also the pockets that he had formed under the surface of the continents to contain the pressurized fresh waters that fed the springs which watered that first cosmos. God caused violent volcanic upheavals in the crust of the earth. The sea bottoms were raised. The continents were lowered. Fissures opened up in the earth to allow lava and underground waters to flow out, and the waters under the firmament violently began to spill across the entire surface of that beautiful first earth. But this was only one source of the floodwaters. The windows of heaven were opened. The great water vapor canopy, which God had suspended above the atmosphere of that first cosmos, the waters above the firmament, began to coalesce, and these waters fell to the earth as torrents of rainfall. And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Destruction that goes beyond our power of imagination was brought down on the surface of that first earth as God reversed his work of the second and third creation days. The waters violently overflowed its surface, leaving once again a universal sea, just as had existed on the first day of creation before God had made the two great divisions of the waters. And the cosmos that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Peter reminds us that it was the very substance out of which that first world was compacted and between reservoirs of which it was sandwiched that God used as the implement of judgment and destruction. That substance was water. It was water that the creation account of Genesis chapter 1 assures us that God used in a unique way to provide the great blessings of that wonderful environment of the first world. But when unbelieving men chose only rebellion and evil, it was also water that brought about their destruction. God released the boundaries of the waters below the firmament and he brought down the waters above the firmament. 
As a result of these actions, that beautiful first world of Adam and his immediate descendants, being overflowed with water, perished. God reversed his work of the second and third creation days, and once again this planet Earth was covered with a universal sea. But God did not long leave this planet in that condition. Noah and his family had believed God, and those eight people had built an ark of safety. They survived the total destruction and devastation of the floodwaters that were brought down upon that first world. And out of that destruction, God brought a new world, the heavens and the earth which are now. And this world was to be populated by Noah and his seed. In Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we read these words. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated. God once again divided the waters from the land, and the continents of this world began to appear. To accomplish this, God distorted the surface of this planet so that lowered basins were formed to provide storage places for the great volumes of water that formed the universal sea of the great flood. Other areas were raised to form continents and islands. The waters began to drain into the low basins that God had formed, and soon the waters were abated. Noah, his family, and all the animals of the ark were able to step forth on the dry surface of this present earth. But there was a great difference in the heavens and the earth which are now and in the world that then was. After the windows of heaven were opened and the great reservoir of the waters above the firmament were allowed to fall to the earth as 40 days and 40 nights of torrential rainfall, God has never yet again raised these waters to their former position above the firmament. The waters that were formerly above the firmament are now in the great ocean basins and in the frozen polar ice caps of this world. That's why this world has 70% of its surface covered by water and only 30% left as dry land. The world that then was had a great deal more land area than does this world, and it had only a only small and shallow seas. Because this present world has no water vapor canopy to act as a greenhouse cover, it is unequally heated, and it has an entirely different system of climate. It has distinct seasons, and it has distinct latitude zones. Storm systems move over its surface, and it's watered by rainfall rather than by dew and springs. And since this world is not kept in store for judgment by water, God has not provided a great reservoir of water that can be brought down upon the earth as an instrument of destruction. But the heavens and the earth which are now are kept in store, reserved unto fire against or in conjunction with the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Once again, I see that my time is almost gone. We'll continue our study of Panorama of the Ages on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Until our next broadcast, this is Wayne Carver declaring God's basic message to you. The Bible stands. Oh,